Thanks for tuning in to the Millspec Believer podcast. We have a really awesome guest today, and I'm really excited to introduce retired Major Jeff Struker. He's got quite the resume, but as he would say, this is uh, the story that God has written for him. Uh, he's been an Army Ranger for 13 years. Uh, he was involved in the invasion of Panama, more famously the Battle of Mogadishu. And following that, he became an Army chaplain. And now he's an author and pastor in Columbus, Georgia. So without further ado, retired Major Jeff Struker. Thanks for coming on, sir. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no worries. I just want to dive straight into it because, you know, like you have quite the story. God's done a lot through your life. And so just kind of starting not what everyone knows, Black Hawk Down, but kind of before that, uh, what was early life like for you, uh, both in your exposure to Christianity uh, and kind of what drove you towards the Army? Yeah, um, my parents didn't go to church, so I didn't get raised in a Christian. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. Um, my parents divorced when I was pretty young and neither one of them really wanted anything to do with church. So I maybe went a couple of times in my life with my parents when I was young, never really had uh, anybody talk to me about Jesus or explain the gospel to me. And when, so when I was 13 years old, my next door neighbors, uh, at the time we were living in a little apartment complex and the people that lived directly across the street or across the hallway from me were a young married couple. And they started to treat me like a little brother, man. They asked me to come over and hang out at their apartment. They played games with me. We did stuff together all the time. And I just, you know, developed a pretty good relationship with these two. They were a few years older than me, of course, but not much. And then one day, uh, it's actually one night. I remember this pretty vividly because they, instead of inviting me over to their apartment, they came across the hall to mine and they uh, knocked on the door. It was just me and my little sister in the apartment at the time. My mom was out and they said, hey, can we sit down and talk to you? And I was like, sure, what's going on? And they, they both looked really nervous. So they sat at my dining room table and really for the first time in my life, they explained the gospel to me. They talked to me about sin. They described for me about what, who Jesus is and about what Jesus did for me. Um, and I could tell that this was really, really important to them, but they were really nervous. And I, I like to tell crowds this, like they stumbled all over themselves. I'm convinced <laughs> that I'm the first yeah. person they ever talked to about their faith. And, um, and there's no real way to do it, do this wrong. I want people that are tuned into this podcast to know you can't mess this up as long as you're just sincere. And as long as you're trusting the Holy spirit. Yeah. I think, I think on a previous episode, I basically said if the only wrong way to do it is to not do it, you know, and, and like, I just love like when they gave you time, you know, like that's the biggest thing is they invested time into you and they stumbled. That is awesome. Like if anything, that's even more encouraging. So sorry, keep going. No. Well, so I had a bunch of questions because really nobody had ever sat down and explained this to me. And they were really patient one night, same night, just doing the best that they could to answer questions. But they, there were some questions they were like, we don't know the answer to that. I, I'm not sure. I'll, I'll try to figure out the answer, but I really don't know. And then they basically just said, hey, Jeff, here's what we want you to understand. And they explained to me about sin. 
They talk to me about what it means to have your sins forgiven, what it takes to become a child of God and to be born again. But I remember this part pretty clearly. They were so nervous at this point that they just kind of left it there and they left and they went across back across the hall. And later on that night, after they left, I started thinking about what they said. Um, I was in my bedroom and 13 years old and I crawled out of bed and I don't even remember what I said, but I basically just turned my soul over to Jesus and God did uh, something in my heart. I could tell that he did uh, a miracle inside me. And I, I could tell it so much that the next day when I went to school, instead of going home after I got off the bus from school, I went across the hall and knocked on my neighbor's door and said, hey, I did what you guys told me to do yesterday and something is different. What do I do now? That's awesome. Uh, they started taking me to church. They started, you know, investing in me. And that's really how I became a Christian. And um, God, I, I tell people, man, God just reached down and he found this dirty, you know, 13 year old kid and decided I'm going to clean this kid up and I'm going to make him into something new. Definitely. Before I joined the army, I just want your, your listeners to know this before I joined the army, I had, I nailed this one down. I had this rock solid faith. So when I'm sitting in high school, senior in high school and considering the army, my faith was not in question. Now, what I was going to do with the rest of my life, my future, I had no idea. So I just kind of went to an army recruiter on a whim. So you, would you say like faith wise, uh, like you said, you were solid. I, I know like I, I accepted Christ, I think when I was 10, but I didn't really see a life change or I didn't really see a lot of fruit in my life probably till I hit like late high school or college. That was like really when I think my, the faith was actually real to me. So I, I can't really point to an exact time. Maybe I was saved, but, um, like from your standpoint, would you say like from 13 on, like, man, like that was life changing and that was, that was everything. Or would you say kind of, it kind of went back and forth? Well, for me, it didn't go back and forth as much as I knew inside that something was different. I kind of knew inside that what I believed was rock solid, but nobody really showed me how to be a disciple literally yeah. until I was about 20 years old, 2021, 20, um, because I moved away not long after I became a Christian, I moved to a new town. And then after that, I just got up and walked to the closest church. So it wasn't until I was already a sergeant in the army that finally a pastor took me under his wing and just said, I, I'm going to show you how to become a disciple, teach you how to make disciples. And that's when my faith really started to take off. I mean, I, I knew what I believed and that wasn't in question, but living in it and making an impact in other people's lives, it took me a while to get, uh, to get my arms around that. Definitely. And I think that's a huge point is men's discipleship is huge, you know, like getting someone in your life who's speaking into your life, someone more experienced, maybe just in life or a mentor in the faith, just to be speaking into your life. Like, I mean... If you don't have that, like, I think you're missing out on, on just a great opportunity for God to be building in your life through that person. I absolutely agree, man. The word <laughs> disciple basically means an apprentice. And if I'm going to be a disciple, that means I need a master that can kind of show me how to be an apprentice um, and study from a master. And I don't mean somebody who's really mastered the thing. I just mean somebody who's been around a little bit longer. 
And then if I'm really going to be a disciple maker, like the Great Commission in Matthew 28 says, then I'm going to have to take somebody under my wings and do the same with them. Definitely. And that's how it is in the military too, right? Like you show up to your team, you show up wherever you're at, and like you don't know anything. And those those dudes who are experienced, those dudes who have been there for a long time, take you under and make you into the soldier or airman or whoever that you're actually going to be. And if you don't have those dudes, then you're going to be lost in the sauce. So you just went to the recruiter on a whim. No no drive to go in the military prior to that. You just, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. So I didn't really have, I didn't come from a military family and I didn't really have anybody pushing me to the military. I was sitting in my senior year of high school, not really sure what to do with the rest of my life, but um, I was working at a fast food restaurant and knew I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. So I just kind of went to a recruiter and I, I wanted a, a, honestly a free ticket out of my hometown. So I just said, hey, what's the toughest job in the Army? And they steered me towards the Ranger Regiment, um, which is what I ended up spending almost all of my career doing and absolutely loved it. Right. So like I, I said in the intro, like you involved in the invasion of Panama, uh, Mogadishu, like, I guess, what what really went down in Panama from your perspective, um, I guess, as as a Christian, where you're at during that, as a as a soldier, where were you at in that? Well, my first combat experience was the invasion of Panama, and I didn't really know what to expect, but I had a, a senior guy, like you were just talking about a moment ago, um, who was our platoon sergeant, and he was a, a veteran of Operation Urgent Fury in Grenada. And so he basically said, Jeff, here's what you need to know. I want you to stay close to me, watch me, I'll show you what to do, which is exactly what I did. Um, I was, uh, as you know, already a Christian in the invasion of Panama, and I had this rock solid faith, um, but I had never really, the faith had not been tested. And Panama was kind of a test of faith in that I was in a couple of firefights, was in a Black Hawk that had to do an emergency landing from gunfire. But it, the, the, you know, the firefights over there were high adrenaline, but they were really short in duration. And honestly, the battle and the, the, you know, the big fight over in Panama didn't last for more than about 10 days. So by two weeks into this thing, I'm already, you know, wrapping things up and making my way back to the States um, because we've already defeated most of the Panamanian defense forces and already captured Manuel Noriega, the country's leader, the guy that we were looking for. Gotcha. Were you married at this point? No, I was dating my high school sweetheart. Glad you asked the question. Um, we were pretty serious, but I didn't get, I didn't even propose until after the invasion of Panama. And in fact, Panama kind of was the trigger that caused me to say, man, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be around. If I'm going to marry <laughs> this girl, I better go buy a ring right now. And literally right after I got back from Panama, bought a ring and flew back to our hometown and got engaged. Well, there you go. That'll do it. So, so as far as, uh, like you were saying, when you're in Panama, like you kind of, it was just kind of short durations and stuff, nothing that happened there really compared to Mogadishu in your mind. Yeah, that's right. Um, but I, a year later found myself over in Kuwait as part of desert storm, both of these with the Ranger regiment. So I showed up to the Ranger regiment as a private spent the next 10 years there nonstop and then left there as a platoon sergeant. 
Um, and those 10 years, man, they're really the greatest, some of the greatest years of my entire career in the military. I loved it. Um, but I went from Panama a year later, I'm in Desert Storm and again in the firefight in Kuwait. But like you just said a moment ago, nothing like I experienced in Mogadishu. In fact, I've done a bunch of deployments to Afghanistan and Iraq, but none of them were like Somalia. Well, do you mind kind of walking through your vantage point of Mogadishu? I, I know from my perspective and a lot of the audience's perspective, all they can really grasp is what's kind of been shown through the movie Black Hawk Down. But like that was a huge pivotal point in your faith going through that battle. And and I would think the listeners and myself would just love for you to kind of dive into what was your vantage point and uh, how was that crucial to your walk with the Lord? You're right. It was a massive turning point but it actually wasn't the big fight it was after the fight was over with that became a massive turning point in my life um i was a staff sergeant in somalia i was a squad leader i had 10 men that i was responsible for and my job my platoon was um tasked to do the vehicle convoys for our unit for task force ranger somalia so every time uh, there was a mission, we would roll out on vehicles. Um, half of the guys would go, more than half would go in by helicopter. Some would go in on the vehicles with us. And then they would all roll out with the, uh, on the vehicles. After the mission was over with, they would jump on the vehicles, we'd drive them back. And that's kind of how it was supposed to go on the big battle that ended up becoming Black Hawk Down. Sure. Um, except... I'm, my squad is usually the first two Humvees in this long column of vehicles. And when I arrived on the target building right after the helicopters were pulling off in um, Black Hawk Down, I got notified by my commander, the battalion commander, Colonel Danny McKnight, that we had a seriously wounded Ranger, that Todd Blackburn had been injured by, uh, by a fast rope accident, what I didn't know then was that he fell about 70 feet and he landed in the city streets head first. Jeez. Yeah, so um, I got tasked, my squad, to go grab a couple of medics, put him on a cargo Humvee, and then get him back to the base and, and drop him off with our surgeon. So I hadn't been on the target building for five minutes whenever I was getting already dispatched to go out and to grab Blackburn put them on a stretcher, get them on, uh, on vehicles, and my squad would provide security to get them back to our base. And I tell crowds this all the time when I'm speaking, um, that I'm getting gunfire. The, uh, there's some sporadic enemy gunfire when I'm running to get to Todd Blackburn. Of course, he's unconscious. He's you know bleeding from his nose and his mouth. Um, and I placed him on a cargo Humvee. He had a couple of medics working on him, trying to keep him alive. And I split my squad in half and put half of the guys on a gun truck in front of him and the rest of the guys on a gun truck behind him to provide some security to get him out of the target building. And when we left the target building, when we drove right next to it and turned the corner, I came under what was 200 enemy fighters at point blank range all around me just a couple of us on those Humvees and driving down the road really slowly because the roads there are maybe 10, 15 meters wide and we're yeah. getting hammered by 
grenades and automatic gunfire and rocket propelled grenades and everything you can imagine. And it's all coming from point blank range. And in the process, um, the movie Black Hawk Down shows this scene pretty well. In the process, um, the guy who's sitting actually right behind me, he's not riding the 50 cal on top of my Humvee. He's, he's got a Mag 58 machine gun and he's sitting in the back seat behind me. His name is Dominic Pilla and uh, Pilla was shot in the forehead and killed instantly. He fell over into the lap of specialist Tim Moynihan. And at this point now, Pilla is the first and as far as I know, the only guy killed in action in Somalia. And this is the moment where every one of us in those vehicles, I came to the conclusion, we're gonna die. We're gonna yeah. die in the next few moments because the, just the sheer amount of gunfire, nobody's gonna survive that. Doesn't matter how good your weapons or your technology is. You're just, you're not gonna be able to beat those, those numbers. Well, and you're, you were saying as, as well when we talked previously is that you got a guy in the, in the back that's injured, like you're not like really considering him killed yet, and you're, you're driving down some awful road, so it's not even like you can just gun it going like 90 miles an hour or something. Yeah. Yeah, so basically it becomes now a, just a fight for the, from one city block to the next, just trying to make it alive to the next city block. I frankly didn't think that I was going to make it back to the base. I didn't think any of us were. And I won't go into all of the details that it took for us to get back, but when we finally make it back, vehicles are shot to pieces. Several guys are, you know, injured. Blackburn is just barely hanging on to life. Dominic Pillow's dead right behind me. And this scene is depicted in the movie Black Hawk Down pretty well too. Um, my boss comes up to me right after I get back and says, hey, Jeff, we had a second Black Hawk helicopter get shot down. And I didn't, I was so busy that I didn't even know the first one went down. Yeah. He said, we already put the search and rescue force in at the first crash site where Cliff Wilcott's helicopter crashed. Now Mike Durant's helicopter has crashed and we don't have anybody else who can go out to the second crash site. So I need you to get out back on your Humvees and I need you to roll back out there and see if anybody's alive at the Durant crash site. And of course, there's a special operator who rode back with me on those Humvees who overheard the whole conversation. And he, he had this, this you know, brief exchange with me, just like you see in Black Hawk Down, where he says, hey, Sergeant, if you're going to go back out in the city streets, don't leave your men sitting in all of that blood in the back of your Humvee. Like, that'll have a really big psychological impact on them. You probably need to go clean that vehicle up. So I sent all the rest of my, my guys to go get more fuel, get some more ammunition. And I pulled this one Humvee off to the side with no running water, just buckets and sponges and started to clean up the back of the blood, uh, the blood on the back of the Humvee just to get ready to go back out in the city streets. And I'll, I'll just tell your listeners right now, this is the most, without exception, this is the most terrifying moment of my life. Because as a leader, I'm thinking, okay, I've already got one guy killed. We just barely, we shouldn't have survived what we just drove through. And now we're going right back into it. And every one of us are going to get killed in the next few moments. Um, I've been married at this point for about three years, been trying to have a baby for the whole time. And I got a letter right after getting to Somalia in the mail saying she was pregnant with our first child. And I was thinking as a father and as a husband, 
never going to see my wife again, and my child will not even know who their father is. And deep inside of me, man, everything was saying, don't go back out there. But your listeners that know, know the Ranger Regiment, you know that these guys and gals, they swear their life to one another. They do it almost every day in the form of the Ranger Creed. And they say to each other, I will never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. And I also knew I didn't have a choice. you got to get back on the Humvees and you got to go out there. And if you do, you're going to die. And so for me, Ryan, this is the moment where my faith totally took over and made all the difference. Because I'm standing at the back of this Humvee and I'm thinking, God, I know I'm going to die if I drive back out in the city streets. But I also know without a shadow of a doubt that you are my savior and I know where I'm going to spend eternity. And at that moment, it all just kind of clicked for me. It basically made sense. It was, uh, I kind of understood it in these terms. And I think this is true for every warrior on the battlefield that has a really genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Because the odds that I was facing basically said, probably going to go back out there, definitely going to go out there, probably going to die. But in the back of my mind, I was thinking, God, you are a miracle working God. If it's your plan, you can do a miracle and I may survive this. Maybe I go home to my wife and to our baby that's on the way. But if not, God, I believe your promises. And if my body hits the ground in Somalia, I know my soul is going to go to my father in heaven. And at that moment, man, I just, I got something that I, I can't even really describe for people. Like I just this sense of peace came over me. Like, it doesn't matter what happens next. Live or die, doesn't matter. I'm going to be okay. Um, I'm in the hands of God. And however this thing turns out, it's his plan and I'm going to trust him. And for the rest of the night, man, I had this total sense of peace. I don't want your, I don't want people that are listening to think, oh, so you went back out there and you weren't scared anymore. Or God told you that you weren't going to die. No, for me, it was actually quite the opposite. I was certain that I was going to die, but I just had total peace about it. And yeah. when I, I, I rolled back out in the city streets, not once, but two more times, spent all night long out there until nine o'clock the next morning. I'm in firefights until the moment that I drive out of the city streets and I'm at total peace all night long. And for me, the most pivotal event in Somalia happened after the battle's over with, as soon as I get back to the base. Because when I get back there, my friends, these battle-hardened rangers were coming up to me saying, Jeff, I got to talk to you. Because Jeff, I listened to your voice over the radio last night. Man, I watched you in the city streets. And when everybody else was totally terrified, you were perfectly calm. Like, how is that even possible? And not one, but more than a couple said, uh, you have something that I don't have because I saw it with my own eyes last night and I want what you've got. And I started sharing my faith that day. And I, I've never really heard this audible voice from God, but the day after the battle was over with, I felt as strongly as I've ever felt anything in my life. I felt that the Lord was telling me, Jeff, I want you to do this with the rest of your life. Instead of kicking in doors, instead of killing bad guys, I want you to prepare warriors for eternity. 
um, which is what I, I feel like I've been doing ever since then. So that's kind of the, um, that's how big of a deal Somalia was for me, but it wasn't getting shot at. It was actually um, being able to minister in ways that I never expected to be able to minister after the battle was over with. That became the most significant event for me. Wow. Oh, I, I appreciate you sharing that. And I love what you said that you felt just peace that God was holding you in his hands, whether you're getting shot at or, or you're sitting at home, like you were in God's hands. And it's, it's tough because it takes, it takes these types of events to kind of God to wake us up and have us realize those, those truths. Um, but like, wow, like what an, what an amazing testimony and uh, just for God to give you that peace that night, like we have such a cool God. Amen. Yeah, you're right. So, so you finished up that and you, you instantly, like after getting back from the deployment, started looking into the chaplain um, route, right? I didn't. Yes, that's exactly right. I didn't have any college. I joined right out of high school. So I came back. I talked to my pastor and my chaplain both. And I told him what I was thinking and what, how I, what I was feeling God speaking to me about. And I, I got a, uh, came away with the, uh, both of them telling me, you need to go to school immediately if that's what you think. So I ended up staying in the Army, did an undergraduate degree uh, while I was in the Ranger Regiment. Um, went to seminary. I had a break in service, but um, left the army after 13 years of being an enlisted dude and then became an, a chaplain, came on active duty as soon as I met all the requirements and then spent 10 more years on active duty as a chaplain. And and you stayed within or around at least the, the Rangers as well as a chaplain, right? Yes, I ended up. So my first assignment as a chaplain was the 82nd Airborne Division, did a few years there. This is before and during September 11, 2001. Okay. And then um, I went to the Ranger Regiment and did a couple of assignments, um, almost back to back. I did a one year assignment with in Ranger School in between there, but um, did a couple of assignments in the Ranger Regiment. That's kind of how I ended my career. Gotcha. And, and so now retired. Um, tell me, tell me about what you got going on in, in Columbus. Yeah, we, so my wife and I are high school sweethearts, but um, I started my career in Fort Benning, spent the first 10 years here, and then came back and ended my career in Fort Benning. And when it was time to retire, both my wife and I said, man, this place is like home for us. Let's just stay here. Um, so I retired in Columbus, Georgia. We started a church about a year ago. Um, we started it in January of last year, and then we started on the campus of Columbus State University. We're still meeting on the campus of CSU, by the way, but um, six weeks after starting the church services, the university said, hey, you guys got to shut down. So we transitioned to online only for a long time um, before yeah. coming back to meeting in person. and. We're still meeting on the campus of CSU. We're now back to meeting in person, but we're both online and in person. Gotcha. What, what's the name of the church? Two Cities Church, and it's the number two, Two Cities Church. The name is really important. The name comes from a book by the famous church father, Augustine, Bishop of Hippo. And he wrote a book a long time ago, almost 2,000 years ago, called The City of God. And in this book, The City of God, Augustine says, listen, 
as Christians, you and I, we don't ultimately have citizenship here on earth. Our real citizenship belongs in heaven, in the city of God. But he's left us here on earth to make an impact while we're here on earth in the city of man. So the idea behind two cities is helping Christians be good citizens of both the city of God and reaching your friends and your neighbors with the gospel of Jesus here in the city of man at the same time. Yeah, I, I love that. Like, this is not our home. <laughs> like, this is like we we are going home to glory eventually, and this is just a small snippet of eternity. And I, I love the name of your church. I love the meaning behind it because that is just like we need that encouragement every day, I think, as as we go into our day. Yeah, the name itself is supposed to remind people, hey, wait a second, I'm supposed to be good at two, I'm supposed to be a good citizen of two cities today, not just one. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, kind of just a, a closing question, just kind of what the heart of this podcast is just encouraging uh, guys to be bold. And I think your story alone can do that. But what advice or encouragement would you give um, just to anyone going to their squadron, going to work today uh, about being vocal in their faith? Yeah, be natural, be uh, bold, though. Don't hold anything back. And by be natural, what I mean is you don't have to stand there and recite some pre-formatted gospel presentation. Just be yourself if you're a Christian and let people know the difference that Christ has made. But at the same time, I would say, don't, don't hide your faith. Don't be the guy or the, the city under, a, you know, the, the light that's under a bushel, because um, sometimes you may just sit there and be subtle and, and be honest and you feel like nobody's listening. But I can tell you, lots and lots of people will be paying attention. And I know many Christians who get letters from guys and gals that they worked with in uniform but it's 20 years later and the letter says, I watched you for a long time and I never said a word to you, but the way that you lived, what you said to me, it had a really big impact. It just took 20 years for it to take root. And I'm a Christian today because of watching you or listening to you. So just be yourself, but also don't hold back, be bold. Definitely. Well, again, thanks for coming on, sir. Thanks for uh, sharing all the words of wisdom and just, again, the story that God has orchestrated for your life is awesome and the stage that he's given you to proclaim Christ is awesome. And so we'll be praying for you as you continue on your ministry and uh, praying for the listeners that uh, hopefully this is an encouragement to them to be bold. Yeah, it's great to be with you. And I hope this, uh, I hope your listeners have a great time today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, sir. Have a good one. Yeah, we'll see you.